and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 282, recorded on March 1st, 2023. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Well, hello, Wes. Let's do the news. The end of February marks the first anniversary of the Steam Deck shipping to customers. We thought this made for a pretty good moment to check in with what BoilingSteam.com calls the ultimate gaming platform. I feel like this year came up on us really quick. It still feels like the deck is my newest device, and waiting in that queue to finally get my pre-order still feels like a pretty fresh memory, but you know what? I went back, I looked at it, it was the end of 22, kind of the end of fall, beginning of winter, where Valve announced that their pre-order queue had been fulfilled and that the orders were now just going live. You didn't have to get in any kind of line, you could just go on there and order a deck. Now, unfortunately, the deck hasn't made it completely around the world as of now. One year later, I know our listeners in Australia are still waiting for an opportunity to be able to buy the Steam Deck. But I think even if you can't or don't own a Steam Deck yet, as a result of the device existing, especially over this past year, Linux gaming has improved. Yeah, that's really got to be one of my takeaways here. I still need to personally pick up a deck. Or maybe a deck too? We'll see. But gaming on Linux, just in general, has gotten a lot easier. In fact, we keep seeing reports from the audience, you know, folks who had dabbled with Linux gaming in the past but never really stuck with it, and then giving it another try more recently and just being blown away with the progress. It used to be that a game working on Linux was kind of the exception. You know, we were all happy about that. But these days... I think it's the other way around. For me, the Steam Deck killed the Nintendo Switch. Uh, it's just, if you think about it as a pure gaming device, it's really incredible. You just power it up, you log in, and every PC game you've ever bought ever on Steam is just available. I cannot buy any other gaming console where that's the case. Um, it just, it breaks buying all other consoles, I think. it's It should be the new standard you'd you buy the games, and then you can put them on any device you want. Right now, if you go buy, say, a Nintendo Switch, you end up spending at least or, or, or maybe almost as much as you did in the device just to buy games for the thing because they're like 60 bucks a pop. So I think having your entire gaming library available to you is a compelling advantage for regular consumers who don't get caught up in the technology. And the fact that the deck has been executed well um, again, I think is also a compelling consumer option. The thing is, for me, and I know a lot of people in our audience, it's also really appealing because it is a pure Linux box. I do get caught up in the technical stuff, and I, I really like what they've done here. I think the OS is fascinating. And then the fact that Plasma's on there makes it just one of my all-time favorite hardware devices. And, you know, Steam is getting close to 8,000 validated games now for the deck, with Almost 3,000 of those being verified. Sure, there are still some hit-and-miss results in that pack, but when you think about the number in terms of games being released for a console in its very first year, it's kind of a staggering amount. Yeah, it is. And it's really only possible because Valve invested a decade in building out gaming on Linux, and then they based the deck on all of that work and they're using Steam Play as a shim with benefits. It's got to be a combination of long-term thinking and all of that decade of work coming together that delivers results that Nintendo, Sony, or Microsoft could only dream about because 
they don't have that pipeline. And I agree, Wes. I think the deck two is going to be even more compelling, uh, but I'm pretty happy for a Gen 1 product. Yeah, speaking of competitors and new devices, looking back at the past year, I think it's probably notable that there hasn't been a real competitor that's gotten anywhere close to the deck in sales or media coverage. I mean, it's, you know, a, an open sort of device. Companies could have gone wild with this. Now, there are a couple of devices out there, like the GPD or the Neo 2, but I don't know. To me, at least, they don't seem to really be moving the needle and are kind of more expensive in some cases. Yeah, I, I like the idea that this is a new class of console that maybe we'll maybe we will see some competitors come along that are really worth snatching up uh i think the thing that's really hard to compete with though is even if they can match it on the hardware or maybe they could even you know leapfrog the hardware it's not impossible but they won't have that network effect that steam and valve have and that's going to be tricky i think as i see this kind of long game playing out i really think back to that famous quote from linus um god it was almost nine years ago I'm on record as saying that maybe Valve will actually save the Linux desktop. And it's actually not because I think games are important. I don't care. I don't play games. I think some people do, so games may be important. But the really important issue is, I guarantee you, Valve will not make 15 different binaries. And I also guarantee you that every single desktop distribution will care about Valve binaries. So... The problem is Valve will build everything statically linked uh, and create huge binaries, and uh, that's kind of sad, but it's what you have to do right now. FFmpeg is one of the world's most widely deployed open-source projects, and version 6.0 was released this week. Let's celebrate. This is great. FFmpeg is essential software these days. And we have been waiting like nerds for a bit for version 6.0. The project was initially roughly targeting a January-ish release, but I think 6.0 will be worth the wait. It's shipping this week, and I had the opportunity to watch the Fosden presentation before it was released, given by Jean-Baptiste of VLC fame, and what he calls kind of a a dual talk. He talks both about FFmpeg 6.0 and about VLC. He discussed the work going into FFmpeg to improve its multi-threading code. One of the, the major changes, um, one of the, is one of the most um, difficult things that we've seen is multi-threading the FFmpeg CLI, right? So all those big uh, guys are at YouTube and, and, and Vimeo and Facebook and all those uh, providers of FFmpeg nice UIs, um, are basically one of the things they complained about is the lack of multi-threading and FFmpeg. So they invent a lot of weird frameworks to do that. Um, so there is a lot of work to do that directly inside FFmpeg. Uh, it's going to go on for the, for the whole year, I think, for all 2023. But that means that a lot of things will be better for you to use. And of course, when you do that, you need to actually care about threat safety, right? And, and cleanups. So that's a lot of cleanups. What was done for 5.0 was that the muxers are now in their own threads. Um, there will be more things. The project seems to have internalized that large cloud providers, well, they'll build whatever scaffolding they need to make FFmpeg do what their use cases call for. But it wasn't just the CPU multi-threading that got some work this time around. FFmpeg 6.0 supports encoding acceleration on all 
major GPUs. One of the things that is important is that you've probably seen that the, all the big guys building GPUs have now shipped uh, AV1 encoders. So in 6.0, we got Intel and NVIDIA and AMD. So you can actually encode um, AV1 in hardware. And that's actually very fast, right? Well, maybe not quite as big as operations like YouTube, but Jupiter Broadcasting actually is a really heavy user of FFmpeg in multiple different ways. And so we always appreciate all those little performance improvements, too. It means our episodes get out faster. And, you know, it's not all CPUs and GPUs. Actually, while the RISC-V did get some love as well, 6.0 is sporting all of the traditional array of updates you might expect. In terms of actual features, uh, there is, of course, lots of new codecs, uh, lots of new uh, filters. Um, the ones I prefer are the FTR, which is a annoying company uh, who doesn't want us to reverse engineer that. Uh, Bonk, APAC, um, uh, there is a SIM SSIM360 filter um, and some very cool bitstream filter too, um, for the DTS to PTS one. Look at that one. It's quite useful. We'll have the entire talk linked in the show notes. Besides FFmpeg, the talk also includes valuable insights into the nature of free software development and a darn neat demonstration of using WebAssembly to run VLC right in the web browser. So check it out. As we mentioned on the show recently, Plasma 527 marks the end of the 5 series. Though, of course, that series will still receive updates for quite a while. But the team is making things official this week by moving the Plasma repos to Qt 6 only. And they do warn, upstream Plasma is going to be broken for a bit. Writing, quote, there will be disruption because of this. While we aim for getting a basic workspace running as soon as possible, non-essential functionality might be broken for a while. We'll be following that development process and update you as notable moments happen. Linode.com slash LAN. That's where you go to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and it's a great way to support the show while you're checking out fast reliable cloud hosting with the best support in the business. I'm talking real humans all day, every day. And on top of all that, they have the best performance. 11 data centers for you to choose from right now. A dozen more coming online this year. They're investing majorly in their infrastructure this year. And then there's tons of great features like S3 compatible object storage that is just killer, cloud firewalls that stop bad traffic from ever getting to your rigs, backups that are transparent, easy to understand, and quick to restore, and Kubernetes and Terraform support so you can snap it right into your existing infrastructure if that's what you want to do. I'm encouraging you right here, right now, treat yourself to something special. Go build something. Go learn something you've wanted to try for a long time. Do it on Linode's dime. Go get the 100 bucks and try out their infrastructure. Try it for yourself and support the show. Go over right now to Linode.com. It's what we use. Linode.com slash L-A-N. Get the 100 bucks for 60 days and kick the tires for yourself. That's Linode.com slash LAN. And thanks to Collide. Collide.com slash LAN. Our sponsor, Collide, has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. How? If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they've fixed the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like 
keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecured devices are logging into your company's apps because there's nothing there to stop them. Collide is the only device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication. And it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. Visit collide.com slash LAN to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash LAN. The Linux 6.3 development window is open, and we wanted to look at some of the more interesting new features and improvements that have landed so far. Well, it might not surprise you to learn it's shaping up to be another fantastic release already. And as always, Michael Larble over at Pharonix has some great additional coverage we'll have linked so you can get all those nitty-gritty details. But one of the more interesting new features here is the introduction of the hardware noise tool. Yeah, this is fascinating, and I hadn't really been following this too closely until now, but it seems like it's a it's a hardware noise tool that's been coming together just over the last few months. The project name is HW Noise, and it relies on the operating system noise tracer to track and display a summary of the noise attributed to hardware. And it does this by disabling interrupts and scheduling of threads, so only non-maskable interrupts and hardware-related noise is observed. That sounds pretty neat. For this next story, I think you'll need to bring your own horns because you just knew more Rust code would be landing in the kernel soon. With 6.3, that more Rust code is more groundwork, which, once in place, opens the door for Rust-written kernel modules and drivers to hopefully start getting upstreamed and into a future kernel. Maybe not exciting, but definitely important. I'm not getting my hopes up, Wes, but we could potentially see the very basics of a Rust driver in Linux 6.4 or 6.5. Maybe. We'll see. But it's going to be pretty soon. And, you know, we're always watching for notable file system improvements that are coming your way. In 6.3, Extended 4 is now using multiple processes to perform direct I.O. writes to pre-allocated blocks using a shared inode lock rather than requiring an exclusive lock. Just this change alone can give you significant performance improvements. And as you might expect, there's also your standard bug fixes and cleanup that are landing for Extended 4 as well. Not to be neglected, we've also seen a big batch of ButterFS updates for Linux 6.3, submitted by SUSE's David Sturba. This includes support for block group allocation class heuristics, which aims to pack files by size, which should help to avoid fragmentation in block groups. There's also another round of improvements and cleanup for ButterFS's native RAID 5 and RAID 6 implementations, much like we recently saw in the just-released Linux 6.2, apparently an area of active effort. Don't sleep on ButterFS. It's getting rapid improvements with every kernel release, and some of them are just performance improvements that you just love to see. It's just so great. And as uh, Michael Larble says, they're, quote, juicy performance optimizations <laughs> resulting in really significant gains for certain tasks. So it's 
just fantastic to see Butterfest getting this kind of investment from multiple different groups, in this case, by Seuss. And there are the scheduler changes merged earlier this week that tweak an area of the kernel that really impacts all of us. It's mostly a collection of minor optimizations and fixes so far. That's nice to see, of course. But the question at this point for me is if all these little micro-optimizations, if you will, actually add up to measurable performance gains. Yeah, I suppose so. Time will tell. There'll be some testing, I'm sure. And lastly, an area we're always keeping an eye on just for ongoing development is Risk Five. With 6.3, we're seeing some edge cases get solved, ultimately, hopefully resulting in a more polished user experience if you're trying to get Linux up and running on a Risk Five chip. You see, in Risk Five land, there's a healthy-ish extension system at play. Fortunately, that can also lead to some real curveballs for the kernel to have to deal with. But merged this Saturday is some code for improved extension detection and uh, some alternative patching infrastructure that should help with non-spec compliant extensions. Yeah, the reason why I think that's kind of nice to see land, Wes, is because ultimately it's just going to make the RISC-V experience feel less fragmented. And um, there is a decent list of optimizations for RISC-V landing in 6.3 as well. But a lot of those are workload specific, so we'll just leave the links in the notes if you're interested. I think my takeaway is I am so impressed by the amount of just rapid improvements to a lot of systems and subsystems that we use on a daily basis. This stuff continues to get iterated and improved upon, and nearly every single kernel release is noteworthy these days. This has not historically been the way this has worked. If you go back to some of the 4-series kernels and early 5-series kernels, there's not a lot going on in comparison, at least compared to today. I guess maybe back then we thought otherwise. I just feel like when you, when you think about this project, trying to put the scale of it into words, at least all at once, is almost impossible. I think the best way to go about a project like this and really trying to capture what it's doing is documenting the important moments in real time. And so we'll keep doing that for the kernel and everything else happening in the world of Linux and open source. So you don't miss a single episode. Head over to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get every new episode. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. Linux Unplugged 500 is this Sunday. If you're listening in real time, join us at jupiter.tube on Sunday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, or... Just catch it at linuxunplugged.com slash 500 at your leisure. We'll be back next week with our take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us. That's all the news for this week. <laughs>